folks, and welcome to the Sense and Theory podcast, where we cut through the bias and extremism to find common ground that brings us together. I'm Sense. And I'm Theory. And today uh, marks a, a new chapter uh, somewhat in, in the Sense and Theory podcast. You know, we spent a lot of time in our first 31 episodes talking about the divide in this country and like the the symptoms that it causes, the disease that it causes to our democracy and everything. And that's fine. I mean, you, you need to know that. You need to see it. But what we're going to try to do going forward is shift gears a little bit into that common ground aspect and finding solutions and how to heal that divide. That's right. And so instead of being whiny, angsty teenagers complaining about how bad and broken everything <laughs> is, we're going to be adults and we're going to do our part to try to pick up the pieces and put together something that works at least better. Yeah. So we're not, you know, we're not throwing the whole format of the show out. There'll be times where there'll be things that come up that we'll still talk about, you know. But, um, but yeah, every now and then I wanna, we're going to throw in episodes like this where we try to find those, uh, you know, those solutions that we can all get together on. But here's the thing, like, you know, as we've always said, we're, we're just two random guys, you know, like here in, here in Kentucky, like, you know, we're not policy wonks. I mean, we do the best we can. So even though we ask all the time for your guys's feedback and emails and all that stuff, well, now it's like more important than ever because right. we need you to help us like kind of hammer out these ideas and test these ideas and see what works and what doesn't. And, and pose them to your friends and see what your friends think. And, and especially if you have, you know, family that's interested in politics uh, or a policy wonk, uh, you know, in your Rolodex, like, yeah, you know, yeah. run it by them, uh, see, see, see what it sounds like, see what it feels like, flesh it out, uh, and, and hopefully get back to us. Mm -hmm. I think ideally we would like to propose some solutions that are good enough, uh, to actually have legs yeah, and take yeah. hold. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe ultimately it's pie in the sky, but you got to aim high, right? I you mean, got, you gotta, you gotta do what you can. You gotta and at least our try. hope is that maybe in some way, whether, whether, whether we are the the impetus or whether we're just something that helps in along the way, we want to try to help form a meaningful third party or at least, you know, get the country talking about a multi-party system to try to break up the dominance that the two entrenched parties have had for far, far too long. And I think so long as they remain in power and, and you know, rule from their roosts, it's going to be hard to find meaningful change. Um, or to heal that divide. But I think that's what the majority of the country, you know, wants. And we've got some numbers today that are going to back that up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so without further ado, um, let's talk. You mentioned a third party. Let's talk for a second about what a third party might look like and kind of the inherent problems with uh, with a third party in America. And, and maybe even some of the things that have prevented such a thing from happening, you know, up to this point. Yeah. Well, the, the first big hurdle that you're facing if you're trying to form like a, a third party is you don't you, you have to find a way to unite voters. Right. But you also you know, the majority of the, the country is going to tend to uh, be somewhere in the middle. But you don't you don't want to get accused of like holding up the status quo, mm. especially in this climate, you know, like in the in the post occupy world status quo is no good. So. That immediately causes problems if you turn to the label of centrism. Now, now you and I have, you know, in passing said that we're centrists or that we're moderates and, and stuff. Well, that's a very tricky term to use, especially in politics, because there's so many connotations 
And, and you know, there's so much baggage that comes with that term. Okay, so what what is a centrist by definition? Well, if you're looking, a centrist is, it's, it's not so much like it's a thing unto itself necessarily. There are people who consider themselves independent centrists, you know, and, and, and they exist right there in the middle of the political spectrum. But you have both left-wing and right-wing centrists, people who... You know, uh, uh, you know, like myself to an extent, they lean right, but they're not completely, you know, saying that there's nothing on the left of value that mm. we, you know, some of that we can use. Um, unfortunately, though, like, you know, throughout history, the problem is, is so what happens? You've got you've got people on the right and you've got people on the left and you got these centrists who say, you know, well, there's there's some stuff we can use from over there. But then when you get to the point where you start hashing everything out. It gets it gets very lackluster. It mm. gets very you know you're not you're not making any radical changes. And like I say, it's it's more like you're entrenching the status quo, right? So so, so there's kind of a traditional idea that that the centrist is just like this wishy washy fence rider, right, right? Right, impeding progress. And mm-hmm. you know he's the guy when the party is trying to go left. He's the guy pulling him back over here and going like, no, no, don't go that yeah. far, don't go that far. Yeah, but then but then he won't let that side start going right either. You know what I mean? So mm. like, it, it's almost like he's just obstructing both sides in a sense. Right now. I mean, you know, it, it, to me, I think it's an unfair characterization in a lot of instances, but there's also instances where it's absolutely fair and valid. Well, I think part of the, the reason that a party would see its centrist component as being, you know, obstructionist, if you will, um, is this, is this fear, this pervasive fear that allowing the other side to gain any ground is like is like giving rise to fascism on this side or giving rise to to communism on this side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's 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 very much uh, born out of this idea that the alternative is is so bad that it must be avoided at all costs. Right. So so damn these centrists who are who are seeding ground within our own party, right? Yeah. I mean, assume for a second that that both of those positions. Um, you know, fascist dictators over here, communist dictators over over here, assume they both hold a, a grain of truth, right? That means we're literally locked into voting for the lesser of two evils. And yeah. I mean, George Washington talked about the dangers of a, of a you know, two party system. And yeah. now here we are staring it right in the face. Well, yeah, no, I think I think what you said is is very important because, you know, maybe maybe not fascist dictators and communist dictators, but I think it's extremely arrogant for someone on the left or someone on the right to assume that their side of the political spectrum or their party is completely right. Like, what are the odds, man? Or immune to authoritarianism. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, And this idea is like, it's pervasive. It it gets to the point where some people, it would seem, think that the entire conversation should happen within their wing of the political spectrum. And and that's just, that's just, that's denying... Uh, any kind of balance. I mean, it, it really is like, you know, hokey as it may sound, it really is like a yin and a yang. You know, you have authoritarianism and libertarianism, uh, liberalism, progressivism, and conservatism. I mean, like they, they balance each other out and, and the way forward is finding that proper balance. And then, you know, as far as what you were saying about Washington, you know, uh, his farewell address, if you have not read it, like when he left office after his second term is wonderful. And it's, it's actually like, I used to think it was kind of hokey that we called him the father, you know, the father of the country and all that stuff. But, you know, after reading his farewell address, there are timeless things in there. 
And regarding political parties, especially, listen to this. Um, he says, quote, however, political parties may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to assert for themselves the reins of government. Like you just gave me chills. Yeah. Like, no, George, George knew 200 years ago, man, <laughs> like 200 plus years ago. Yeah. And, and, you know, he tried his best. Um, he asked, you know, them not to form political parties after he left. And, and at first when you hear that, you know, like without context, like it kind of makes you recoil for a second. Cause you're like, well, I mean, are you talking about like a, a dictatorship or like, you know, are you talking, <laughs> what, what are you talking about here, George? But he was just saying, you know, please don't devolve into this, this petty infighting. We literally, the when John Adams, second president, like during that campaign, did exactly what George Washington said not to. <laughs> so, so you get into you get into this tough spot. Like you know, unfortunately, George. Like I think we 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 have to have political parties as much as we don't like them and as much as they might hurt things. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't take George's words to heart and always be looking out for that. You know, well, what we have now, where we have two parties that are entrenched and there's no other voice. And and there we are. That's right. So when we're when we're talking about moving forward and a and a centrist movement, um, am I correct to assume that that we haven't seen a real cohesive centrist movement outside of the established parties? Um. Yeah. Yeah. Like outside of the established parties, certainly not. Now, you know, we we've talked a couple times on this show about how centrist the country was. You know, like in the fifties. Where, yeah, you technically had Republicans and you technically had Democrats, but but you could make a strong case that we were being ruled by like one party that that was in step with the majority of the country. Mm. You know, now now certain, you know, people under Jim Crow notwithstanding, sure. you know what I mean? Sure. But, but that was in step with mainstream America. Um, you know, I actually uh, uh, I had somebody say, you know, the, the 20th century is really a, a just a masterpiece of bipartisanship if you look at it, you know, from a broad perspective. But we we've had some shots at like third party, like centrist parties, but they never get off the ground. And it's because of all those criticisms. It's hmm. because of that because of the you know, baggage they you, carry. How do you build heat when when you're basically talking about not doing anything necessarily <laughs> radical, right? Like, well, it's funny because like on its face, compromise Sounds really good, right? It's yeah. like the best of both worlds. We'll take we'll take the good things from you, and we'll take the good things from you, yeah. and and we'll combine them. But I guess you know that baggage and that history has kind of um, created this idea of the boogeyman, the centrist boogeyman. Right. Um, that's the enemy of progress. Right. Um, and I think, I mean, I think we got to look at 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 the last election and Bernie being screwed by the DNC. Very much so. You had an outsider. Mm -hmm. Um, that was being pushed out by this, by this establishment, you know, this mm. very powerful establishment. Yeah. But, uh, I would note that Bernie is by no means the centrist in that election. <laughs> Bernie, Bernie is very much to the left of the center. In fact, the centrist there, uh, would have been Hillary. Mm. I mean, Hillary was probably, especially with the way that Trump skewed and maybe, maybe not what he did in practice or what he has done in practice, but his campaign rhetoric, Hillary was very much so the centrist option. You know, so uh, you make a good point. There. Well, see, that's that's the problem is that that's what centrism uh, to an extent has become. It's become synonymous with that 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 corporate beast 
that we're all trying to fight. So of course people have a bad taste in their mouth about centrism. Right. So you can, you can come to the center on the wrong issues. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you can absolutely, absolutely borrow the worst parts of the opposite party, <laughs> yeah. which I would argue is what, is what we're stuck in this cycle of doing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> taking and, the worst parts of each one and magnifying them and, as soon as the pendulum swings. You back. know, you had brought up compromise and said how good it sounded, but at the same time, it's hard. And it's messy and you're, you're not going to get everything that you absolutely want. So there is a natural inclination to, you know, asking for the, the moon is a lot easier than sitting there and, and, and hammering out the, the nuts and bolts of tax policy, mm. you know? So there, there's a lot of incentive for, for going extreme with it. But I think, I think what we have an opportunity to do here is kind of change that, that whole idea. And change that whole narrative. And I'm, I'm getting really like geeked up and excited about it. <laughs> but I'm saying, why can't the center support a radical yet practical change that adopts the good points of conservatism and progressivism and melds them into a new way forward? Right. The, the fear, like when you hit people with that, like, why, why can't we, you know, take radical changes from the left that work and radical changes from the right that work or forge new ones that people have never even heard of before and find a hook to bring in both sides? And the fear is, is alienation is okay. For instance, if I take a bold stance as a, as a, a radical centrist party, um, on abortion, then I may not be in a place where someone who's a little bit to the left on abortion or a little bit to the right on abortion feels like they can support me. And then very rapidly, I see my base erode. That's, that's why oftentimes with centrist platforms, you see a reluctance to take those bold and daring positions. Mm. Okay. Uh, on the other side of that, I think, you know, we talk a lot about principles and practicalities on the show. And, and I think for a lot of people, myself included, some principles are, are above practicality. I mean, there's some issues that, that we may not be willing to compromise on. Uh, I don't want to compromise on, on human rights. That's trans rights, gay rights, um, you know, human rights. Um, I think people are always afraid of, of that slippery slope. And I'm the same way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, look at guns, for example. I'm, I'm a pretty hardliner on the Second Amendment. Um, and, and I feel like ceding any perceived ground is like a long-term loss um, yeah. because I cede ground now and then I cede ground again and then I cede ground again. So, so I think very much when you talk about compromise, especially on hot button issues, mm-hmm. it's, it's magnified in, into a bigger picture. So it becomes you know, all the more difficult. Um, I mean, I'm not willing to, to budge on guns, right? Well, I, no, actually, that's the thing. I don't think that's the case. I think you were willing to budge on guns. When you say that you're not willing to budge on guns, remember that you and I both were all for changing the laws around private sales. Okay. Right? Okay. And, and I can sit here and say, uh, uh, you know, free speech, rah, 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 but I am not a free speech absolutist. There's a, a part of the doctrine of free speech that says you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And I completely understand that. Mm. So I think oftentimes, especially when we get locked into political conversations, we, we tend to grandstand. And we tend to say, I have these unflinching principles that cannot be compromised for any reason, right? Until you're hit with something that, that strikes you as a little common sense. You're like, oh, well, I, you know, well, it's, I could deal with background checks for private gun sales. It's, it's not even that. Like, like, for instance, if you look at hotly contested issues, like, again, let's go back to abortion for just a second. 16% of voters who consider abortion their, their big issue 
consider themselves single-issue voters, meaning that they will support or not support a candidate solely based on his stance, his or her stance on abortion. So, and I mean, I think abortion is one of the most divisive issues in the country, but sure. you know, so you find that across the board. I mean, it, it's like I say with me in free speech, like I have a line, but I've got to take what's happening and, and look at that line and be like, well, am I gaining in other places? You know, can I live with not getting everything that I want right this minute? And maybe I can advocate within my chosen political structure to, to get that later on. Right. You know, you, you've constantly got to weigh those two things out. Yeah, I think I think we could all serve to take a look at the compromises that we're already making on -hmm. a lot of these issues. I mean, guns is a perfect example. I've got a libertarian buddy who who strongly believes that we should repeal all of the machine gun legislation. Yeah. Um, And and, you know, he's a he's a two a absolutist. Those people are already making a ton of compromises in in the current system. So asking them to compromise more, um, you know, that. That becomes a tall order at some point. Yeah. Um, but I think we all become a little bit more more flexible when we look at the compromises that are all already on the table. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's easy to forget them, right? You live under them every day. And, you know, for instance, I said, I remember saying in an episode that had I been around in the 1930s, I may not have voted for Social Security, mm. but now I accept it. So, like, I, you know, I don't, I don't think of that as a compromise that I've already made, but it is a compromise if I look at, like, my pure philosophical position. Sure. You know? So, I, I think people, it would behoove people to look around and think about the compromises that they've already made and then say, well, hey, maybe, you know, for the common good, we can find the issues that, that do matter. The issues that do matter is a bad choice of words, but the most pressing issues. And I think there are a, a list of issues that need to be addressed before we can even begin to have an, a, a meaningful abortion conversation or a meaningful gun conversation mm. um, that, you know, deal with the, the practicalities of the system. And, and we fully intend to have all of those conversations. We've already <laughs> had some of them. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, some of our ideas moving forward are going to come later in the episode. But, but first, I want to kick it back to episode 28 for a second. Um, when we're talking about compromise and and principles and practicalities, you know, we both came down with the court on the side of the masterpiece cake shop baker right. who denied the the cake, the custom cake for the for the gay wedding. Mm-hmm. How would you have felt if that landed the other way? Well, I would, uh, you know, I would disagree with it, obviously, and uh, I would continue to advocate for my position. But if the process wasn't subverted, I mean, like if it if it went through the courts correctly and there wasn't this big glaring, you know, hole in the decision or something, um, then I would accept it as the ruling of the court. I think, I think maybe more to your point, the the question would be, what if my party was advocating for the opposite position? So mm. what if I belong to a party that was advocating against Jack Phillips, right? Well, I, again, I'd have to look at the party as a whole and see if it was still a net good for me. But I would ask you this, like, Say I did found a party that agreed with me on every conceivable policy. Question, okay. okay. And say that party was successful and it's, and it's, uh, it's line was things will be the way that theory feels that they should be. And there will be no compromise. I'm not in at this point. What would we call a party like that? Right. I mean, I, I'd be a fan of it. 
And and to tell you the truth, I think a the phrase theoretical dictatorship. I dude, I think the phrase a tyranny of theory uh, <laughs> might be the name of my autobiography. But but let, that's that's what you're pushing for at that point is tyranny. You are never going to find a political party that matches up to every single position that you th- you know in every way you think it should be. Mm, and 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 very much the ideals of democracy stipulate. <laughs> That there's going to be many people who do not get their way. Right. Right. If the majority rules, then the minority does not get their way on whatever issues the majority is is ruling on. And then you also get gradients within the majority. You also get, you know, uh, maybe maybe a good portion of the majority. This is hypothetical, you know, but maybe a good portion of the majority thinks that Jack Phillips shouldn't have to sell them any cake. Right. Or thinks that Jack Phillips should sell them every cake. Right. And then you have people that side with it for a reason or this reason. You know, maybe they find themselves looking at a slippery slope and they say, well, you know, I think I think I have to support that. God, I wish he could. I wish he could deny him custom cakes. I wish there was more nuance there, but I'll take it for now. You know, so so at some point, everybody is a little short on getting exactly what they want. Right. And I I don't think there's any really system of government that's immune to this. I mean, this is governing. I said, uh, you know, in a democratic society, but no, in in a governed society, like there's this inherent um, imbalance. You know, and hell, we can't have our own little utopias unless you're Mormon and get (laughs) put on planet Xenu or something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So we've touched uh, a couple times, like throughout the show, and and actually you did just a a minute ago. But I think the main reason that folks are unwilling to compromise is the feeling that the other side is opposed to everything that we stand for and giving in is tantamount to destroying what we hold dear. Yes. And I think that's why it's important to give people some perspective and get away from those like doomsayers. And like you see it on social media a lot, but like, I don't, I think this whole conversation we're having about the difficulties of compromise, I think we're making it much harder than it needs to be. (laughs) Yeah. Well, especially when you look at, you look at the areas where Americans actually do agree. I mean, Mm -hmm. we talked about in the immigration episode that there's, there's a broad consensus. I mean, 60 to 70% of Americans support strong borders and, and that is not an anomaly. Ninety-one um, percent of Americans say the justice system needs to be fixed. Seventy-one percent of Americans say that the prison population needs to be reduced. That includes fifty-two percent of Trump voters. Two in three, well, sixty-eight uh, percent, would be more likely to vote for an elected official if the candidate supported reducing the prison population and using the savings to reinvest in drug pre- treatment and mental health programs. That includes 65% of Trump voters. I mean, hell, two-thirds of Americans believe that blacks are treated unfairly by the justice system. How do you, how do you square that with this idea that that one whole side um, are racist and, and don't care about yeah. these issues? No, that, that obviously, you know, like we talked about with, with Twitter and stuff, the image I think that most people have of where the country is at is, is simply false. I mean, there is, there is broad consensus all over the place on a host of issues. And, and we're being lied about that. We're lied to about that every day. And the only, the only reason is to drum up support for your side is, is to get, you know, your, your base rabid and and thinking that their only hope is finding salvation Mm -hmm. through the DNC or the RNC. And, and it's just propaganda. That's, that's all it amounts to. Right. The truth is that meaningful compromises can be reached, but they can't be reached 
from the terrible choices that are being presented to us by the two ruling parties. That's that's I'll give you that. Like we can sit there and say, no, we can't reach compromise because I'm getting a crap idea from the right and a crap idea from the left. And no, I don't want to mix those two together. And see what happens. <laughs> right. So, you know what I mean? But if we start with like fresh ideas, you know, new terms, uh, get some new parties, new lifeblood up in there, people who aren't beholden to this interest or that interest, then we can see ideas where there is wiggle room, where there is the ability to melt. Right. And that's and that's truthfully, that's the whole the whole purpose of this show um, mm-hmm. today. I feel like we've got we've got to fight against the establishment um, because if there's anything that we all agree on, it's that this system is broken. Yeah. <laughs> so let's fix it. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, the road is is not going to be easy, and it is going to take time. Mm, you know, we, okay. we talked about we talked baby about steps, having to get yourself you know ready for the fact that you may not get everything that you want tomorrow. Well, let me let me give you some for instances, right? Uh, if you want to get on the ballot as a presidential candidate in America, uh, you have to collect signatures from each state so that they'll place you on their state ballots. Makes sense. As of two thousand, as of the two thousand sixteen election. 864,000 signatures overall were required to get on the presidential ballots in all 50 states. Almost a million. That's, yeah. it doesn't seem like an an unovercomeable odd, yeah, well, but it's pretty high. Well, there's 300 million people in the country, right? Like how hard, you know, that's, that's less than a million. Well, here's the thing. Some states have caveats like Virginia, for instance. Um, you have to have 5,000 registered voters sign the petition to put you on the ballot, but you have to have at least 200 from each congressional district in Virginia. Whoa. So, you know, for instance, I'm not sure what the number is in Virginia, but I know here that would be six or four. Yeah, four districts in the state of Kentucky. And if your state's more populous, like, for instance, California, that means you have to have 200 people from 54 separate districts. Yeah. So already to participate and get onto the ballot, you have to have a pretty strong national organization. Um, A lot of states have benchmark requirements like – you have to receive 20% of the vote in a given election for a candidate or a party to automatically be placed on the next ballot. Otherwise, you've got to go back and get all those signatures all over again. That, so that hurts. The two parties have absolutely stacked the deck in numerous ways to keep themselves entrenched. Oh yeah, not just not just at the at the ballot box either. I mean, yeah. look at gerrymandering. Uh, look at the Dems uh, super delegate practice. <laughs> yeah. Like that's pretty pretty strong entrenchment there. Um, debate requirements. I mean, let's talk about debate requirements for a second, right? Yeah. Um, the Commission on Presidential Debates makes the rules for who gets to be in the, the televised presidential debates, um, and they pick five polls prior to the election. And the only candidates that are that are invited to the debate are those that exceed fifteen percent polling in the polls that they choose. Um, you know, never mind the fact that they get to pick those polls just seven weeks before the election, but fifteen percent. Yeah, yeah, fifteen percent. That is a very very high number. Yeah, that means so if you're just starting out, you know, if you're think about how many people went through the 2016 election and still don't know who Jill Stein is. Yeah. So you have to have 15% of of voter, you know, I don't know if that's just like people or voters, uh but anyway, you have to have 15% of people be able to nationally recognize who you are and and actually support you um for you to even get on that debate and that debate dude as much as we you know, maybe the debates are scripted and the debates are very like, you know, they follow a pattern and stuff. We can almost predict what they're going to say. But 
being on TV that night in the presidential debate, that is huge. a huge thing. You have moments like, you know, Mitt Romney and his binders full of women. You have the locker up moment from the Trump and Hillary Clinton. Like those things define campaigns and elections. Sure. And and I think it's it's important to note that there's there's been some pretty loud pushback against the CPD mm-hmm. and their rules. Change the rule.org claims uh, a 15% polling threshold requires 60 to 80% national name recognition at a cost of approximately $270 million. Wow. That's an amount of money that no independent candidate has ever raised, nor any billionaire has ever spent yeah. in an election. And then, and then we got to, we also, we got to look at those polls, right? So like, which polls are they using? Well, they, they change them and in each election and they have uh, a gentleman from the uh, Gallup poll organization kind of, you know, lend it some weight and give his recommendation. But for instance, in 2016, they used the ABC Washington Post poll, the CBS New York Times poll, the CNN ORC poll, which is a poll of uh, CNN. And I think it was, uh, I'm not sure what the ORC was. Benzo, that's all you, buddy. Uh, Fox News poll and the NBC Wall Street Journal poll. Now, I'm not going to wade into the whole discussion about Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton right now, but how do you guys at home feel like those polls would be treating Bernie Sanders? Just going to lay that out there. Touche. And, and, and back to change the rule.org for a second before we move on. Um, in the, in the interest of, of promoting change and, and fixing yeah. things, uh, they're proposing a signature competition uh, to allow a third seat at the debate. So essentially... Um, whoever, whatever third party candidate got the most signatures, uh, would automatically be guaranteed a seat. Right. Um, and to me, that's, that's a, that's a foot in the door. It's a good starting point. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's the silver bullet. Um, and I think we have ways very much. So nowadays we have ways to kind of escape that entrenched idea. I mean, social media was huge for Bernie Sanders, for example, um, you know, he, he was able to drum up an incredible amount of support on Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, without even, you know, entering those debates. Granted, yeah. tons of money spent, um, to drum up that support yeah, yeah, and, no, and to spread his message. Absolutely. So I think, I think what that shows is that it's, it's going to take a combination of things. We're going to have to, you know, you want to play the long game, uh, you know, and build a new party, but you're also going to have to work towards achievable goals in the existing structures and, and, and also build networks of like-minded people in the meantime, it's going to take all three of those things. Well, to me that the key there is building those networks of, of like-minded people, because that's the part that is sort of outside that I see as outside of establishment control. You know, it used to be, um, you could start a newsletter and build a phone tree. Mm. Um, you know, now all those things are, are in our pocket. Right. Um, so building that network of like-minded people to me is the first step. It's the foundation. It's the firm foundation of, of building any, any party moving forward. Um, I say that to say, guys, um, we'll be talking about building a third party a lot, <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, in, in coming months, weeks, years, even, um, if you're interested in kind of getting inside of it and following along while, while we progress, go to the website, put your email address in. We don't spam. Yeah. Um, if if we if we have any ideas, we need input. We, we'll send you an email about them. Yeah, get get on the list. Join in the conversation. No, absolutely. So, so what about all these brilliant ideas, right? <laughs> so, I think the first place, um, if we're going to work from within the system to kind of change things up, 
the first place that we have to work is so it's so obvious and it's how we vote. Mm. Right. Think about the, the system that we use now is called like a plurality system. And it's, it's either, or it's a or B it's the lesser of two evils, right? So yes. you're already kind of locked in. Yeah, very much. Our, our current voting system establishes the, the entrenched two party system and, and locks out mm-hmm. any independents trying to come up within it. We saw it with Bernie. We've seen it all over the place. Yeah. Um, so there are actually movements across America that have sprung up um, trying to change the way we vote. And one of those that, that I've championed before on the show is ranked choice voting. Right. Um, I hadn't done a whole lot of research into it, but in mm-hmm. preparing for this episode, uh, when we dug deep, we came across a really funny situation in Burlington where ranked choice voting kind of screwed the pooch uh, Kicked the dog. We're doing dog kicking oh, from now man. on, right? Those bastards. <laughs> so, Theory, why don't you explain to us uh, what happened here in Burlington? Okay. Well, I was I was right there along with you, right? Like, I heard about ranked choice voting. And, and ranked choice voting, ranked voting is a system where voters rank the outcomes in a hierarchy, right? So you pick your first choice, your second choice, your third choice, so on and so forth. That's what I knew about ranked choice voting, and I was like, man, that sounds great. Yeah, right. Yeah, you get to vote for for the guy who doesn't have much of a chance still, and you don't throw away your vote. Right, right. Well, the most common form of ranked choice voting that's being pushed across the country right now is called instant runoff voting. And it's a voting method used in a single-seat election with more than two candidates. Instead of voting only for a single candidate, voters in IRV elections rank the candidates in order of preference. Ballots are initially counted for each elector's top choice. Losing candidates are eliminated. And then ballots for losing candidates are redistributed until one candidate is the top remaining choice of the majority of voters. Whoa. Yeah, my eyes nitty, are blazing over. <laughs> so, <laughs> what does that mean, though? So what does that mean? So I vote for, uh, let's say we have Bernie, Hillary, and Donald. Okay. Uh, I go through and I say, I want Bernie to be president. I'm going to make him first. Uh, I don't want Donald, so I'm going to go second for Hillary, and we'll put three for Donald or nothing for Donald. You mm-hmm. can do that as well. So they tabulate all the votes. Uh, after the first round, Bernie has the least number of first place votes. So Bernie has lost the election at this point. Oh, so he's out altogether he at, is that out point. at that point. Now they take everyone who voted for Bernie as their first choice. They take their second choices and apply those votes. Wow. So now at this point, Hillary, you know, well, it stands to reason that Hillary would get a massive upsurge in that Mm -hmm. second round. Well, that's kind of what happened in Burlington and things went awry. Okay. Okay. We're going to, we're going to use those same three candidate names to make this easier because I ain't going to lie to y'all. This gets a little complicated. <laughs> All right. So in Burlington, we had the three candidates. We had uh, Bernie, Hillary, and Donald. Now, when they looked at the election after, after everything was said and done, after everything I'm about to go through, they could look at the numbers and they could see on all the ballots, Bernie was preferred to both Hillary and Bernie was preferred to Donald. Okay. Bernie did not win the election. Interesting. And that's yeah. because of the placement or the ranking position right. that caused him, since he was in the, in the second place position more yeah. than by the time it got to that final round, he was already gone out of the picture. Right. So the other two actually got more first place votes. But when you look at it, so think about it like this. When I say that, you know, Bernie was preferred, 
All right. We're counting instances where, you know, I put Donald first, but then Bernie and then Hillary, Mm -hmm. or I put Hillary first and then Bernie and then Donald. Bernie appeared ahead of the other two candidates in one form of another on more ballots than any other candidate. That seems broken to me. But the he way- did not have the majority of the first place uh, votes in the first round. So when I pictured ranked choice voting uh, in my head, that's not at all how I pictured it. You mm-hmm. know, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't imagine a ca- candidate getting disqualified in the first round um, simply for not having enough first place picks. Right. Um, and that seems like it seems like a huge flaw to me. It seems well, like it leads to things like like Burlington, although that's not what happens in a majority of ranked choice elections. Yeah, the right. Ma- the majority of ranked choice elections, you don't have situations like this. But unfortunately, that was a situation that existed. And I want to I want to actually add there was there was sort of a second kicker to this. Right. So. In in IRV voting or instant runoff voting, you go until somebody has more than 50 percent of the vote. OK. But if we use that same Bernie, Hillary, Donald in the Burlington election, all right, Donald got 40% of the vote in the first round. Okay. In the second round, when Bernie gets eliminated and all his second choices get applied to Hillary, Hillary catapulted past him. (laughs) So not only did we have the person who would have been the head to head winner against either candidate winning, we also are uh, losing. But we also have the guy who got the majority of the vote in the first round losing. Yeah, that's a little that's a little nutty. <laughs> it gets a little wonky. It man. gets a little wonky. So there is there is a patch for it, right? In that situation, Bernie would be what they call in ranked choice voting the Condorcet winner. Condorcet what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there was a guy, Marquis de Condorcet, and you know, anyway, he came up with this this table or whatever. So when I was describing all the instances where you see Bernie ahead of the other two candidates. That's called a Condorcet table. And you can see that this candidate was preferred. Was obviously preferred head to head over any of the other candidates. It may not have been everybody's first choice necessarily, but he was more preferred than the other two. Right. Um, So there is a patch to ranked choice voting that might fix it. And that's to say the Condorcet winner can never be knocked out in the first round. Okay. And it turns out like, you know, like we said, the majority of the time ranked choice selects the Condorcet winner anyway. But if you add that stipulation, there is no known instance where you save the Condorcet winner from getting kicked out in the first round. And then he still lost the election in the second. It doesn't happen. Right. And, And let's be real clear about, about the problem with this happening was that, was that most of the voters, a majority of the voters in Burlington felt like they got the worst outcome. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> Everyone felt like they got shafted. So in our scenario, they ended up with Donald, right? And Bernie fans were upset. Or no, I'm sorry. Actually, I'm, I take that back. They ended up with Hillary. And Bernie fans were upset because, you know, their guy got knocked out, even though he was the most favored. The Donald fans were upset because their dude was in the lead before the second round. And the other, the other problem here is that it actually incentivizes you to game your vote, mm. right? So, like, there is such a way that if the Donald fans would have put Donald second and voted for Bernie first, then... Then they could have knocked out... Donald could have won. They could have knocked out Hillary and Donald would have won. <laughs> so there's a way to game it. And if you establish a voting system that has those, those little glitches, are people going to exploit it? Of course they are. Honestly, um, in the research I've done, 
and the most eloquent way that you just explained the system <laughs> to me. I did my best, man. <laughs> um, I still struggle to understand the specifics of, of ranked choice voting. I think it's it's way more complex than what I had in my mind, and it's way more complex than than how I picture an ideal voting, voting system being. Yeah. Um, I also think that even though we can patch what happened in Burlington, Burlington walked away from ranked choice voting. Yeah. All of their voters were so frustrated. They, they said, got rid of it after no, that we're killing the yep. system. So I think the optics for that don't go away. Right. You know, even if you can say, sure, the, the Condorcet patch, you know, fixes this flaw. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's complicated. Yeah. And, and there's an optics problem with well, it now. Let's let's not forget that we're we're talking about the same population uh, using this system that struggled with the butterfly ballots in 2000. So I mean, there is precedent for us wanting to keep our voting system as streamlined and as simple it as it be, possibly can be. I feel like you you take the same approach as you do to to something like designing a website. You want the dumbest person in America to be able to walk in the voting booth mm-hmm. and and escape with a well placed vote. Yeah. And if if the the dumbest Americans can't walk in and intuitively glance at what's going on, understand it uh and and vote according to their values or their beliefs, then yeah. then we're messing up. So what you're telling me is you're looking for simplicity? I am looking for simplicity. Have I got a system for you? Okay. Let's talk about approval voting. Hit right? me with it. Uh, Approval voting is a single winner electoral system where each voter may select or approve of any number of candidates. The winner is the most approved candidate. Hey, that sounds really good to me. I have a couple questions, though. Okay. Um, For one, you don't have any limit on the number of candidates you can approve? No. I can can vote for everyone. You can vote for every single person who's running, if you so chose. Okay, that makes sense. So I can I can approve of Hillary. I can approve of Bernie. I can approve of Jill Stein. I'm not throwing away my vote at all. And if right. enough people also approve of Bernie, then Bernie gets elected. If they don't, then uh, Hillary or Stein gets elected, assuming they have well, higher approval. Yeah, but there are some problems. For one, if everyone includes Hillary as that safety vote, Kind of okay, like, yeah, and they, I mean, and they would. That's, 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 the that's what you're saying. Yeah, yeah you're, you're you're trying to give the 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 outside candidate a leg up, right? Yeah, right. So, so I see where you're going with but this. If everyone, if everyone includes, goes, Hillary's my safety vote. Yeah, then she's by de facto. We're still has a, more approval. We're still in a plurality system, if you ask mm. me. I mean, like if if like I said, if if now I feel like I can vote for Gary Johnson, but you know. I really don't want Hillary to win, so I better vote for Trump just to make sure. Then basically everybody ends up voting for Trump and Hillary. Right. And we're right back We're right back where we were, and that problem is not eliminated. Hmm. Okay, well, here's the thing. So there is a way to fix it in approval voting, and it's called bullet voting. All right? Bullet voting is the practice. I like bullets. (laughs) Bullet voting is the practice of voting for just one candidate when you have the ability to vote for multiple. (laughs) Right? So now- even though you can vote for all those people, you're still going to go in and you're just going to say, I want Jill Stein or right. I want Bernie or whatever. You're going to vote for them. And you, that way you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, because, for instance, with approval voting, if I vote for Bernie and Hillary, what if the fact that I safety voted for Hillary 
keeps the person I actually want, Bernie, right. from winning. What if it comes down to just them two? And and I could see yeah. that happening every time. Right. I don't think it's a what if. I think yeah. that's a that's a definite consequence. Yeah, no, I mean, if you if you're not bullet voting, if you're not just going in there and saying Bernie, and you're going to put Hillary on there, and Hillary is more baseline popular, she's going to win nine times out of ten if that's what all the Bernie voters are doing. Right, we're, right? we're back to plurality voting. And, and this, I don't like the idea that there's some grand strategy to your to your <laughs> voting i you know it sounds like game theory to me yeah. and and i don't think that we should complicate the voting practice uh with strategy and things yeah. I, I think that just opens up too many doors again i want the voting system to be intuitive um and and easy to understand and hard to manipulate well uh, that that last one's a pretty good qualifier as far as it being easy to understand uh, approval voting looks like what we're doing now. You just get multiple choices, yes. right? And I also, I could see it helping third parties cross those vote thresholds and to help them like requalify for ballots. Oh, that, that's a good point. There's no reason for a Hillary fan, uh, especially if, if she doesn't fear a challenge from Bernie. There's or no, Jill Stein. There, or Jill Stein. There's no reason not to throw them a bone just to help them get a little pick-me-up in the national conversation. Get in the debate. Okay, you know so, so I could see... I, I, I walk back from that a little bit because I could see we're talking about playing the long game, right? Right. And I could see approval voting leading to a snowball effect eventually after right. multiple elections. Like you said, you cross the 15% barrier, you get more yeah. election funding next year. Uh, you're able to to spend more money on messaging and, and you gain a wider audience. And next year's election, maybe that effect snowballs. And at some point, you replace the popularity of Hillary, or you eclipse the popularity of Hillary Clinton, yeah. and now you are the candidate um, that that wins in the you know essentially plurality vote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's a little. It's it's maybe that's a little too long of a game. Yeah, to that's me. that's that's way down the road. I mean, ultimately, to me, man, I don't see the two parties losing sleep over approval voting. They're like, oh, oh, okay, yeah, sure. You know what I mean? I, I don't think they'd worry about that at all. I do know? have to say though. Um, I would compromise right now and take approval voting yeah, <laughs> over, yeah. over the system we have now. No, I, this very second, if there were no other options on the table, status quo, approval voting, yeah. meh, I'll take approval voting. Well, before you sell us all out, let me give you one more option, right? So what if I could give you a system that had a little bit of approval voting going on and had a little bit of rank choice going on. And maybe it was the perfect compromise, right? <laughs> All right. So we got another system. It's called star voting. And why don't you actually hit us with the details on this one? All right. So uh, lots of people actually tout star voting as a superior system. Um, it hasn't seen a lot of use and there could be very many unforeseen flaws with the method, you know, much like Burlington cropped up right, with, right. with ranked choice. Uh, who knows what's out there? Um, but in a nutshell, star looks like this. Uh, you rank each candidate on a scale from zero to five, or you can choose not to rank a candidate at all. So this looks a lot like something we're all very familiar with uh, product reviews, mm -hmm. you know, uh, podcast reviews. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, after the first round, all the scores are averaged and the top two choices move on to the second second round. In the second round, you simply calculate how many people preferred A over B, how many people preferred B over A. 
Yeah. And the winner takes all. And that's what's cool. Cause I mean, like the information's already there. Like you don't, there's no need for like, you know, reconfiguring the ballots and all that stuff. You just, then you just go back and say, well, on these ballots, who preferred A to B and who preferred B to A? That's right. I, I like it. Um, because again, it's, it's intuitive. We all know how to, how to rank things on right. a star from zero to five. You know, there's not, there is some room, uh, for strategy, for example, choosing not to vote for a candidate, mm-hmm. uh, doesn't affect their average. Well, while, but- while rating a candidate zero absolutely has the effect of, of helping to tank a candidate's average. Yeah. So there's some strategy there and some game theory, perhaps. You could, you could get into some high math on stuff like that. But I think this is, I think star voting is the least susceptible to tactic voting. And actually, I mean, look at bullet voting, right? You can, you can choose to bullet vote. I can go in and say, well, I'm not going to rate the rest of them. I'm just going to rate Bernie, right? Mm-hmm. That's fine. You have helped Bernie's average and possibly helped him get to the second stage. But by not rating anybody else, you now have no voice in that part of the election. That's right. Since so, you didn't, since you didn't vote for the adversary, you don't count in to to the preferred vote, right? Because in the second round, you're comparing who preferred Bernie to the second runner up, right? Right. If you did not vote for the second runner up at all, yeah, that is that is you counted, have no preference. That is counted as a no choice, and I, I think that's why it's it's like it's it, there is no preference, and also there is no preference in the event of a tie. So if I go in and I say, uh, you know, I'm going to give Bernie a five and I'm going to give Hillary a five and Bernie and Hillary make it to the final round again, you have no say because you said you were equally cool with either one of them. So the the impetus really is on you to actually thoughtfully rank the candidates according to how you uh, would the order in which you would be cool with them being president or what have you. Right. I, I definitely see some some weird things cropping up with like messaging and brigading, mm-hmm. I think you would probably have political parties come out and say, oh, rank Hillary zero or rank all the Dems zero across the board. You know, you'd have efforts to to go out there and, and tank a candidate's ratings. Mm-hmm. But I think that'd kind of be in check because the other side would be tanking ratings too. So look at, look at Hillary versus Trump. Uh, I think a lot of people overwhelmingly considered them both to be bad candidates. Right. Well, if we all were allowed to voice that at the polls, mm-hmm. it would look a lot like the averages of those two bad candidates sinking while rising, raising the averages of the candidates people were eh, okay yeah. on. Well, that, any, any of these new systems that we would switch to are going to present new paradigms, new problems, new, you know, and it's one of those things we're going to have to learn to adapt. We, we simply have to look at, why we want to change and does the cost outweigh the benefit and and so on and so forth. Um, For instance, I I think one of the things that people haven't considered with either rank choice or star voting actually to a great degree is kind of what you just touched on with the campaigns of, you know, rate, rate these people two, zero, three, four, you know, and then rate, you know, well, we've already seen instances with rank choice voting where uh, someone like uh, uh, a Trump, would see somebody like Bernie challenging Hillary and they have actually had, you know, like a Trump running campaigns for the Bernie candidate, running (laughs) ads for the Bernie candidate to help weaken her position. Right. So we've already seen stuff like that. It's going to happen. But the reason that we want to switch one of these voting systems is because we want to try to add more data into our votes, right? More nuance, more value. Exactly. And that, and that enables us to, to have a great deal more say. Um, so, 
Speaking of having a great deal more say, again, folks, we want to know what you think. There are three voting systems. There's inter, uh, uh, instant runoffs, uh, approval voting, and star voting. Which one of those do you think we should use going forward? And I, I wouldn't even pose it that hard. Um, you know, when you say which one should we use going forward, that's that's a hard sell. I'd say which one should we trial? Yeah. Because because if you look at Burlington, they very much trialed the system. Yeah. Um, and they and they walked away from it when it no longer served them. And I think that's an important factor to think about. We're not talking about uh, you know, federally mandating star voting. Right. Um, this could be trialed in local elections. It could be trialed at state elections. You know, there's there are multiple levels. In fact, we are going to trial star voting among our listeners. Uh, we're going to put together a star poll for you guys, mm-hmm. uh, and you can come on and and rank the voting systems that we've put forth here. Yeah. And uh, once we get enough data, we're going to share those results with you. You'll learn a little bit about the star voting method, which I think is our preferred yeah. uh, method after doing some research. Um, and hopefully we'll all come to a better understanding of some of the choices oh. that are out there for us. Well, I promise you we'll come to a better understanding because you're about to give me like poll and vote data. Oh man, I'm going to break that down. See what I can do about like demographics and stuff. We're going to get into the analytics of this. Yeah. I'm sure all six listeners plus your mom are going to give us a statistically, (laughs) we'll have a statistically significant number of responses to pour through. Yep. Well, kind of staying in that same sphere, but moving on just a touch. um, I want to talk about another idea that's out there that I think is really brilliant. And I think people oftentimes don't go far enough. And that is, Having an election holiday, mm. uh, making the day that we vote, making it a honest-to-God holiday. Um, but a lot of people seem content with saying, hey, well, let's just make it a federal holiday. I say, no, man. Let's. Uh, you, you know how things get on Christmas Eve night where like just about everything is shut down? Yeah, when I can't go get my snacks from Kroger at 3 <laughs> in the morning. Yes, when you can't go get your snacks. Well, I say, let's do that on election day. Right. Let's, uh, you know, let's make it like a basically a national no work day. There would be some exemptions. One of the ones that I thought off the top of my head would be like a hotel. Right. So if a guy's on a business trip, you can't say, hey, you got to get out today, man. (laughs) Go sleep in your car. But any non-essential staff, uh, you know, would definitely have the day off. You just have enough. So hotels open, kitchens closed. Yeah, right, right. Um, And, uh, you know, maybe the same thing with gas station. You know, maybe gas stations have to be open, first responders. But everything that we can close, let's close. And I don't want to hear anything about no Black Friday sales, no, you know, Best Buy gets to open at 1030 at night or something Mm. like that. No, everything is closed. And I understand that that may have an impact on small businesses. So I say, um, let's give small businesses a tax credit for, you know, giving their employees a paid day off. Sure, sure. And I, I think you could and even and even go so far as like so at the gas station, you still have to be allowed to go vote, even if you have to work. So, you know, everybody gets a two hour break that's paid. That's, right. That's even not, the ones you know, that are that, that still have to work. Yeah, that's not your lunch. And we would and we would reimburse business owners for that as well. Yeah, that that's a no brainer to me. I mean, especially looking at, you know, fifty percent voter turnout in, in twenty sixteen. Anything we could do to to encourage participation is a good thing. Not to mention you kind of start to build a tradition with that, right? right. So 
So if everyone, if it's treated as a national holiday and everyone gets the day off, you have no excuse not to show up at the polls and then, and you keep it the whole day. So it's not just we're closed during the polling season. So you come home to your family and you watch the election results together. Um, and, and I could see this in a, in a very non insignificant way, um, transforming our ideas about the election. Well, it encourages a sense of patriotism and, and, uh, uh, people wanting to have an understanding of their civic responsibilities and duties and all that good stuff. Um, but you know, at the same time, if, if voting ain't for you, man, you you enjoy your day off, off, man, you know, get tanked if you want to, you're going to have to buy that beer the day before, (laughs) but you know, um, no, enjoy yourself. And I, I just, I don't, I don't think, uh, it's going to hurt the country to take a day off. In fact, I, I often I, I get I'm one of those people that gets mad on Thanksgiving when all those businesses open that night. And I understand, you know, people like their sales and everything. But, geez, man, give give people a day off, sure. man. You know, yeah. it, it, it doesn't hurt. Um, another way that people are trying to streamline the the voting process is they're advocating for home voting. And they're saying, hey, you know, we should make it as easy as possible for people to vote now. I could see a ballot that that you could fill out at home, not unlike the absentee ballots that we already have for sure. people who are overseas and stuff. And you either mail it in or you can drop. Maybe maybe we institute a system where there are drop boxes at like the post office or something like that. And somebody's mean you can drop off your vote that day. But I'm telling you right now, people voting over their home Internet connection seems like. A terrible idea, if for no other reason than just the perceived risk. Uh, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not about the perceived risk at all. Um, I mean, for one, we had a Diebold employee testifying in court that he was paid to put a back door in an election voting machine uh, <laughs> that would swing the vote in the case of like a 50-50 tie. Either way, you decided. Oh, wow. Um, that is a matter of record. Oh, wow. Um, but even, even beyond that, I, we've got hackers that are penetrating the most secure, you know, Fort Knox's of mm. computer systems and, and stealing people's personal data every single day. Yeah. No part of election data should be crossing internet wires. If you ask me, yeah. not at any point, it's too, it's too critical. Yeah. Um, I am very much of the camp that believes, uh, paper ballots, you know, physical ballots that are passed hand to hand um, for all the failings are far more secure than than trying to, to port this stuff over to the Internet. And I don't right. care. You, you know, you got people out there talking about using the blockchain and stuff. And, dude, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. care. There, there may be unforeseen uh, flaws with the blockchain system that allow manipulation. There are zero day uh, you know, hacks that come about that, that people don't even learn about until data is stolen. Like, right. granted, we're trying to fix them, but well, well, let me, let me accept all of your very, very valid points, but also just to give my perceived risk thing, it's fair shake. I think that's part of the problem with some of the voting systems that we were just talking about. Right. Because the, the air of legitimacy in an election is crucial yes. as we have seen over the last 18 months. Like, so even having that component where people are like, it may have been hacked. Super dangerous. Or, you know, for instance, with IRV, like there may have been some number trickery that got rid of the wrong candidate. Like you want to minimize that stuff as much as you can. So while I'm all for streamlining things and making things easier, 
let's not, you know, get ahead of ourselves and say, oh, well, you can just automate everything, you know, it ought to be great. And then, you know, you end up with those, those very real threats to our democracy. A place where I think we can make voting much easier is another idea. And this one's out of Sweden and maybe a couple other places, but Sweden for sure. Um, and that is uh, automatic enrollment, right? So what Sweden's doing is basically they're using their tax database to then automatically enroll everybody uh, in elections. Mm, so if you're a taxpayer, you're you're enrolled. You can just show up to the poll. You are registered to vote. Yes. Something about that feels uh, a little off to me. I mean, I think a lot of people obviously don't vote, and you know, some of them don't want the government to have any record of their political leanings whether that's on ideological grounds or if it's out of fear of, you know, a fascist dictatorship coming to rise that could, you know, possibly abuse their information uh, or any other wacky reason they might come up with. I think forcing them to register or doing it automatically just, just feels kind of gross to me. It feels icky. But here's if I want to opt out, I feel like I should be able to opt completely out. Well, I mean, completely is, is, is quite the word, but I will say this. They don't have to know anything about you that they don't already know. So, like, for instance, you said you don't want them to know your political. Maybe somebody doesn't want them to know their political leanings. So we take the tax database. All those people are registered as independent. Okay. Now, or even null. You, I could uh, even see you being registered as, well, as in, null. Independent, in effect, is null. It's an independent. We I consider my independent status like a political choice. But not really. Independent just means that you are independent of a party. It is, you know, it just means that you're out there. And so what that means is you can't vote in a primary. Well, if you want to vote in a Democratic primary or Republican primary, and we have not radically altered our voting system, like I hope we have, (laughs) um, then you're free to do so. It's just that part's on you. You're the one that has to go down there and be like, I want to be registered Democrat. But this way, it's a catch-all. You can show up the day of the election and vote as an independent. Right. You don't have that situation where you show up and they go, uh, sir, you didn't know that the registration deadline was nine weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, one of the one of the problems I would see is, you know, potentially the IRS might have old uh, an old address for you. So it is incumbent upon you to keep your address renewed. OK, so you show up and your ID doesn't match their records. So right. they say, sorry, you yeah, can't vote. Yeah. Now, if the, if there's a massive difference, that becomes a problem. Now, for instance, one time I moved cross city here where we live and I realized that was the case and I didn't have time before election day to fix it. So I just went to the the precinct that I was registered in. So, I mean, if you can do that, then, you know, you're cool. Now, if you've made like a big move and you can't go cross town to vote or whatever, update your address, man. But but I think more people will get a chance to vote than currently do. And, and, and. Honestly, I'm not even one of those people who really like blames the system for that. I think if you're not registered to vote, like, come on, man, like just go <laughs> register to vote. Like it's it's really not that hard, but, but fair enough. You know, this removes that from the conversation in my opinion. So I think we really, uh, I think we really accomplished what we set out to do here. Um, we talked about how important it is to break up or shake up the establishment and that that means accepting compromise and it means accepting change um, and accepting possibly out of the box ideas mm-hmm. um, in order to fix problems that we all are well aware of and yeah. we all agree exist. Um, so, you know, we broke it down. We talked about three ways we can change how we vote in this country that solve 
very real problems with our current election system. Right. Um, and I, I think if there's a, if there's a criticism for this, this episode, right, it would be, you know, we started out talking about how hard it is to compromise and all this stuff. And then we went after these very like mundane things in a sense, right. Um, you know, election reform, election start systems. small, right? Yeah. Ex- but that's the point. You do start small. And I think it's important to talk about those election systems because as we saw today, especially with IRV and star voting and approve, it can get very complicated. In fact, some people may just kind of veg out, tune out, you know, mm-hmm. and they're like, oh, I don't know, just pick one. But folks, this is where it starts. Like you can see, look again at approval voting, which is my least favorite of the three. And look at how quickly that has a, a, an impact on third-party participation, on them qualifying for the debates. Mm-hmm. We can fundamentally change the country in a big way with just a small change like that. That's right. And, and even smaller, you know, we talk about uh, an election holiday. Yeah. That, to me, you know, that's like this dumb little no-brainer that that has no traction for some reason. And, right. and, and why not? We complain about 50% voter turnout. We want to fix it. Well, let's that's an easy fix. Are you, are you telling me we can't get broad bipartisan uh, support for a day off? <laughs> <laughs> Home voting, automatic enrollment. I mean, yeah. uh, again, these are these are things. Whatever my minor quibbles with them, um, I think we ought to be pursuing them. Yeah, they make sense. Yeah. Um, well, the episode is full of ideas, and like we said, we want to hear your guys' opinions and feedback on all of them. So. You know, if you think there's a little thing that can make the election holiday better, or you think there's something that means uh, that, you know, home voting, why you think it just won't work or will work, tell us. Uh, you know, definitely participate in our voting system vote that's going to be up on the website. If you're a mathematician and you've come up with a new voting algorithm that solves all of the problems, yeah. let's see it. We'll, we'll air you, man. Yeah. And this, and like we said, this is not going to be the last episode of this type. Every time that we gather up ideas from you guys or stuff that we see around on the internet or read about, we're going to put together one of these episodes. We're going to lay them out. We're going to hear your feedback. And eventually we might have a platform that we can then, you know, maybe go to some people and talk about getting some things done. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked about having big ideas on the show. And to me, this episode is, is the beginning of that big idea. Um, which is a third party built on compromise, built mm-hmm. on um, objective truth, built on freedom and justice for all. Right. Um, not just the entrenched minority. Yep. So obviously uh, there's huge glaring errors with our assumptions and our facts and our figures. And of course, it's the end of the episode. So now Beanzo is going to come through and tell us why all these ideas are terrible and we shouldn't even have this show. Beanzo, go at it. Oh, no, no. Theory, sweet, gentle, ignorant theory. You fundamentally misunderstand my position. I agree with you, fellas. We need to acknowledge that no matter where you fall in the political spectrum, that there are very real problems with our democracy. The next step after identifying a problem is to attempt to come up with a solution. I just happen to think that you two are the worst two possible choices to take on that challenge. But that's not the end of the world. A person's solution might not be right, and in your guys' case, I'd take the odds that it won't be. But that's okay, because the idea is to present your proposed solution to a larger group of people and get input to help fine-tune your plan. So I actually applaud your call to our five listeners, one quit after last week, to come up with solutions to different broken aspects of our democracy. In fact, 
I'm even willing to lend my vast intellect and superior reasoning to your cause so my buddies out there can take this episode seriously. I think we can all agree that our judicial nominating process is broken. The system was never meant to push through justices on a simple majority. It is wrong when the Democrats do it. It is wrong when the Republicans do it. So let me sprinkle some beans lightning on how we set it right. I propose legislation be passed to where the so-called nuclear option is off the table until votes have been held on the floor of the Senate for at least three other nominees, and the filibuster rule has been reinstated. This would incentivize compromise, as the minority party would be aware that the fourth nominee is likely to be the most partisan choice, while the majority party will have to work to convince the American people they are putting forth good-faith candidates. To avoid the issue of recess appointments, I would place time restrictions on the president's nominating process as well. There it is, folks. I defy any of you to find a flaw. But should you happen to do so, (laughs) it will only help strengthen the idea. Since in theory are right on this, sure, since thinks that Mormonism and Scientology are the same thing, and theory does all his research and doesn't know ORC stands for Opinion Research Corporation, but on this they're right. Come up with your own solutions to problems with our democracy and talk about them in your local communities, or even on SenseAndTheoryPodcast.com, or our subreddit, r slash SenseAndTheoryPodcast, and by the way, I think we need to rethink how we name these things. Fellas, back to you. We are absolutely not renaming the podcast, so don't even start with me on that. Not a chance, dude. Beanzo is a third-rate uh, extraordinaire, whatever yeah. the heck he you, calls him. So he's got what? a contract. That's enough. You know what? I'm, I'm Forget that. I'm not even worried about Beanzo today. I am juiced about this episode, man. It was really fun to put together. And, uh, you know, it made me think, if there is one thing that everybody can get behind... Oh, it's Taylor 2020, baby. It, what what she, the hell honesty, are you talking about? Honesty, loyalty, integrity. She's got a supreme command she's of, not, of harmonics. She's not even old enough to be president. It doesn't matter. It's Taylor 2020. Well, it's, it's something it totally everyone matters. can get behind, man. Oh, this I'll is, be honest with you. Her music is subpar, man. This is the compromise we're talking this about is, right no, this here. ain't compromise. We're sitting here We've arguing. already got a reality show star. What happened to star? compromise? We were supposed to compromise, right? That's what we've been talking about Principal all day over practicalities, mother... Hey folks, it's Theory of the Sense and Theory Podcast. Just wanted to take a second to thank you for continuing to listen and support the show. We really appreciate it. It means the world to us. Uh, if you get a chance, please go to iTunes, leave us a review, uh, like us. Uh, you know, it really helps a podcast uh, take off. And, uh, you know, get at us on uh, social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're at all the usual places. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, feel free to email us at uh, senseandtheorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, show ideas, suggestions, critiques, uh, condemnations, it's all good. Send it our way. Uh, we'll see you next week.